1: Hi everyone and welcome to the 64th episode of The Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi Adam.
2: How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. This good. is such a good episode. Oh
1: my gosh, I'm so excited for this episode.
2: Obviously people saw it's Jody. It's Jody, Jody. Jody Pico. Jody Pico. And which packs me up someone could be so famous and still have people say multiple different ways to say her name cuz even when we we're at the library yeah. The person who was introducing me was like, okay, how do we say, you know, both of our last names are easy to mess up, but right. we're not, you know, international best-selling authors. I
1: think, I remember having this conversation with somebody here at the office recently, with, like, when you're so used to reading stuff, right? you don't, as, like, that's like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. They have that whole thing with Hermione, mm-hmm. how to pronounce her name specifically for the American audience. Yeah. Or no. international, I guess. Non-British. Yeah, non-British.
2: Yeah. But, um... Well, and I was joking with someone because I asked, like, "So how do you say? Is it Pico? Is it Picolt? I was like, "Well, we just get to call her Jody, <laughs> so I'm not too that's, concerned." That's true. But Jody Pico. Yes. Anyway, we did a live interview with Jody at the Cuyahoga County Public Library again. There were so many people there.
1: Oh my gosh, they had to have an overflow room, you guys. There was like 400 in the main auditorium, and then like another 200 in a in a different room where they were streaming it. Yeah,
2: and. You'll hear this shortly when she starts talking, but um, just to let everyone know, Jill and I, ahead of time, we always write up a, a bunch of questions, and some of them are kind of the same every time. And then, obviously, depending on who we're talking to, we make different questions. And for Jody, we didn't even. They, we had forty minutes where the two of us spoke and, inter- and interacted with Jody, and then we did twenty minutes of uh, Q and A with the crowd. In that forty minutes, I think we got through like half our questions because her answers were so in depth and perfect and amazing. Or she would answer multiple questions without knowing what our questions were. She would just answer them in her, like in her responses. I know.
1: I was uh, I was thinking about this before. So it's her new book, Small Great Things. It's very good mm-hmm. in typical Jody fashion. She sort of picks a, a somewhat. Controversial, polarizing, a very hot topic, like a trending topic. Yeah, something I th- that's
2: very much on, on society's yes. mind. And, yeah,
1: and in this particular case, it's race. And I remember you and I having a discussion. I was like, "Do we talk about this?" Yeah, because- <laughs> like, because do we talk about? This? Yeah,
2: it's. <laughs> I mean, if we didn't mention it, it would have been the elephant in the room, right?
1: But she clearly wants us to have this conversation. Yeah, which I I really appreciate, and and I hope we're listen- I, the audience clearly did.
2: Yeah. I, and I think people the way that she comes at it is very straightforward. A, she has done her research, and she we talked about that at, at length in, in the conversation. But two, she is she comes from it from an honest standpoint. She mm-hmm. says, "I'm an upper class white female, so I don't know what it's like to be African American or um, you know be a nurse who is African American dealing with uh, a white supremacist family." She she says, "She's like I don't have." the experience personally but she did all this research she did hundreds of hours of interviews with african-american females to kind of get their life stories and so the way that she came to this story was the right way and she even mentioned a few times like she tried to write this story earlier in her career and she just couldn't do yeah. it so i agree. I, the book is incredibly powerful it's so good you it, it just man it's just one of those things where as i'm reading it i'm like god oh, jody is so talented and I think people will really love it, and I, I beg you to read. This is another one, like, this is where it ends, where we did the big mm-hmm. library read. This is a book that I am begging you to read, because it, not only is it a great book, but it starts a very important conversation, I think.
1: Speaking of big uh, library read, we recorded this in the middle of big library read, and we talk about the book yes. selection. The program itself... Is over. Yes, but hopefully is. your library has the book. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in reading it, and then you know we'll have voting open for the next one uh, in a couple months.
2: Pretty soon, yeah, because we do a couple of those a year. So, um, yeah, good point. I forgot that we had mentioned that in the middle. We did. So we did. Um, if you would like to get a hold of the two of us, you can email feedback at overdrive.com if you have any questions about books um, that you want to read based on what you've been enjoying, or if you have something that you'd like to hear us talk about that we haven't yet let us know we are always uh, happy to get those emails it's nice to see and get interaction from people let them letting us know how you think we're doing so uh you can also find us excuse me you can also find us on facebook and twitter and we have all of our books on pinterest and overdrive.com just search overdrive you will find us um, anything else that people need to know before we let them enjoy this interview
1: i don't think so
2: all right, Well, we'll have- I hope you guys enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast.
0: Good evening. I am thrilled and proud to welcome all of you to the Cuyahoga County Public Library's Parma Snow Auditorium. What a fantastic place evening we have in store for us. I am Tracy Strobel and I'm the Library System's Deputy Director. Just like you I am so excited about our special guest tonight, Jodi Pico. She has long been one of my favorites. I can always count on her books to jolt me out of a reading rut and yes librarians have reading ruts too. She never fails to remind me of the pure pleasure of getting lost in a great story. But before we get started, I have some exciting news for you. You are the first to learn that Cuyahoga County Public Library will be hosting best-selling author Lee Child on November 29th here at the Parma Snow Branch. The tickets will go on sale tonight at 9 p.m., and they are expected to go fast. So check out our website for more details at 9 p.m. and after. This evening marks a special occasion. We are excited to partner with OverDrive, the world's leading provider of digital content. Their top-ranked podcast, Professional Book Nerds, is here tonight. As a part of our partnership, the hosts of the podcast, Adam Sokol and Jill Grunenwald, will interview the many authors who come and visit us here at the Cuyahoga County Public Library. Tonight, Adam and Jill will interview Jody Pico on stage, and the event is being recorded live for the next episode of the podcast, Professional Book Nerds. So, let's get on with the evening. Please welcome the professional book nerds, Adam Sokol and Jill Grunenwald, and our very special guest this evening, bestselling author, Jody Pico.
2: All right, hi. How's everybody doing today? It's
1: a big crowd. It's a
2: really big crowd. <laughs> I don't. Well, we joked last time. You're not here to see us, though. But thank you for coming anyway. I think they're here to see you, Jody.
3: Oh, thanks. I don't know. I can only see two rows of people. Then it just goes. Blank, <laughs> we'll just assume
2: the whole thing. That would be really know. awkward if it is all totally the way to just yeah, I don't know. two front rows. <laughs> there
1: you go. See. So, hi, there there they, they are. are. Hi.
2: Okay. So normally we start our podcasts by having the author introduce who they are and what their books are about, but I'm everyone here is here to see you, so I'm guessing they know who you are. <laughs> so let's do this. Who has read Small Great Things? Okay, that's cool. actually a good thing, because I wanted you to maybe get us started by giving them a brief introduction to the book.
3: Awesome. And if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a history of the book, too. Is that, that, that you kind of good better. Good. That's yeah. how I better? Yeah. So 25 years ago, I was living in New York City, and I saw a news story that really upset me. There was an undercover black cop who was shot four times in the back by a white officer. And I, I couldn't get this story out of my mind, and I really wanted to write about racism. And I decided that I was going to try to write a book about racism based off that story. And I started, and I failed miserably. I could not seem to create an authentic voice, authentic situations. It just wasn't working. And I put it aside. And over the years, I kept coming back to it and thinking, you know, let's play devil's advocate here for a second. You write all the time as people you're not. You write as men. You write as school shooters. You write as Holocaust survivors. You've never been any of those people. So what is so hard about this particular book? And what was hard about it was that it was about race and racism. And it's really hard to talk about racism without offending someone. And so as a result of that, often... We just don't talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. So fast forward now to 2012, and I come across another news story, and this one comes from Flint, Michigan. There's an African-American nurse with 20 years of experience on a labor and delivery ward who helps deliver a baby. And in the aftermath, the father calls in her supervisor and says, I don't want her or anyone who looks like her to touch my baby. And he pushes up his sleeve to reveal a swastika tattoo. In their infinite wisdom, the hospital put a post-it note on the baby's file saying, "No African American personnel to touch this infant." The nurse and some, some colleagues of color banded together, sued, and they wound up settling out of court and getting—I hope—a big payout. I actually, actually, I got to meet the lawyer who defended her at my event in Michigan yesterday, wow. which was really cool. And um, but you know that whole story just really arrested me and got me thinking, and I thought. What if I could use that and push the envelope? What if things had been a little different? What if that nurse had been alone with that baby when something went wrong and she had to choose between saving the baby's life and disobeying her superior's orders? Uh What if she wound up on trial, defended by a white public defender who, like me, like a lot of people who look like me, would never consider herself to be a racist? And what if I could tell the story from three different points of view, the African-American nurse, the white public defender, and the skinhead dad, as they all began to unravel their beliefs about race and power and privilege And suddenly, I knew I was actually going to finish this one. And it was because two things had changed dramatically. I had changed my intent, and I had changed my audience. I wasn't trying to tell people of color what their lives are like. That's not my story to tell. I'm a white woman, and there's not too much I can contribute to that. Plus, there are plenty of authors of color doing an excellent job of that every day. (laughs) I was really writing to people who look like me. People who can very easily point to a skinhead and say oh, that's a racist, uh-huh. but have a much harder time pointing to themselves and saying the same thing.
1: I don't know how to follow up with that. <laughs> all right, let's go. All right, that's our time. I'm glad you mentioned that you you write all these different characters that you're not like. You, yeah. you have a lot of legal stuff. You're the hospital in this one. How, what's your research process like to get all those details? Because they always seem very authentic and real to me.
3: Well... I spend a lot of time doing research. For this book alone, there were 1,200 pages of transcripts based on my research. Um, It took a very long time. And to be totally honest, this book has completely changed my life and the way I see the world. This has affected me like no other book has. And it's because the research was a little different. Um, I couldn't ask all of you to read a book about racism and to address your own biases unless I had done it myself. So I started off by doing um, all kinds of reading. I read tons of racial justice educators because I wanted to have the right vocabulary to start this conversation. Then I decided to enroll in a racial justice course. And I thought, you know, how hard could this be? I mean, I'm a nice person. I'm open-minded. And I went to this course, and I left every single night in tears. And it was because of the stories that I heard from people there. There was the Asian-American woman who came up in tears talking about her love-hate affair with eyeliner because it's so hard to put on her features, but it was the standard of beauty that she had grown up with in America. There was the African-American woman who stood up and said that every morning when she gets up, she has to put on a mask, a metaphorical mask, so that she can go into the world and be the kind of black person other people need her to be. And just once, She just wants to walk out the doors herself. And I sat there thinking, for the first time in my life, I'm never going to have these problems. You know, I'd spent 47 years not talking about race because it was too scary. And and these people were, were beginning to show me a side of the world that I had very consciously been avoiding. Um, then, when I knew I was going to be creating The Voice of Ruth, I gathered about 10 women of color uh, who I met through connections, people, you know, who I would say, I need to talk to someone, do you know anybody? And um, these 10 women met with me for over 100 hours of interview tape. And they told me about their hopes and their fears and their dreams and their successes and their failures, and they totally overlooked my ignorance about their upbringing, which was quite kind of them. And they, too, came in with stories, you know? So there's the mom who walks in with the cutest cutest baby in the world on her hip, her second son, and it's the day after the shooting of yet another unarmed African-American man by a policeman, and she's really upset, and she said how am I supposed to keep my son safe? When he grows up, how do I teach him to not be black? How do you answer that? Um, There was the the young girl who graduated from Vassar College who carried a water bottle that said Vassar everywhere with her. And whenever she went on public transportation, she would face the word Vassar out so that as white people walked by and saw an an open seat, they would know she was safe to sit with. And again, something I'm never going to have to think of. One of these women said to me during our meetings, how often do you talk about race with your kids? And I said, well, you know, when something comes up in the news, and, and she said, I talk about race every night. I have to, because it's a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, the last big bit of research that I did, again, to write another voice, was to meet with two former skinheads. Uh, and the first guy was a man named Tim Zoll. Tim grew up in Orange County. He... Um, had run with a very violent group of skinheads in the 1980s. And one night, he and his buddies went out and beat up a gay man and left him dying in the street, expecting him to die. Um, Years later, when he got out of the movement, he actually wrote a letter to the rabbi of the Simon Wiesenthal Center because during his heyday as a skinhead, he'd written a super offensive letter to this rabbi, and he wanted to apologize. And the rabbi wrote him back and said, why don't you come work for me? So he went to go work for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and every day he would give talks about leaving a life of hate. One day he's in the cafeteria, and he looks up, and he sees the guy he beat up and left for dead, who is a docent at the museum now. So they met each other's gazes, and over a period of months, um, there was apology, there was forgiveness. They rekindled a relationship. They're now friends. They spend holidays at each other's houses, and uh, they spend every day talking about their story to people. The other man that I spoke with is a guy named Frankie Meek. He ran a very violent skinhead crew in Philadelphia. And at one point he went to jail, and what he learned was that he had more in common with the African-American kids in jail than the white kids. Um, He would go to Bible study with them. He would talk about the food that he missed on the outside. When he got out of jail, his first job was to work for a Jewish man. And he had been told his whole life that Jews will cheat you out of money. So the night before his contract was up, he was called into the boss's office. And he was sitting there going, here it comes. The shoe's going to drop. I'm not going to get paid. And the man called him in to say, you've done such an exemplary job that I'm actually going to pay you double. And Frankie began to realize how many exceptions to the rule do there have to be before you have to change the rules. And both of these men now help the government find skinheads to prosecute. Skinheads, they told me, do not look like uh, they used to. They're not shaved heads, they don't have their Doc Martens and their suspenders, they look like you and I. And they spend most of their time online working individually, trying to incite fear and hate through internet postings. They will go into communities and try to make it look like there are more of them in the area than there actually are. They put, uh, like for example, they'll go to a temple parking lot and they put the final call from the Nation of Islam underneath all of the windshield wipers to freak people out. Um... They also told me that still in rural areas, like where I live in New Hampshire, uh, there are people who are white supremacists that are stockpiling weapons for the racial holy war. And you can, in the summertime, attend festivals, like Aryan Independence Day or Hitler's Birthday Festival in the spring, where on a muddy field you can pitch a tent, you can listen to white power bands, you can get tattoos, and your kids can come and they can play games, like Pin the Star on the Jew, Or a piñata that is an African American man hanging from a noose, or you can go target shooting, and the targets have the faces of Martin Luther King Jr. or President Obama. And you know it's important to remember it's 2016, and someone in this country is making that paraphernalia for them.
2: And hearing you talk about your research process, it's clear because there's so much detail in this book Mm -hmm. um, from obviously all the, the serious race relations and. And all of the the medical, I I couldn't even pronounce a third of the. Neither can <laughs> I. I. Yeah, I, I mean, don't
3: know. All you nurses out there,
2: yeah. power to you. I mean, there's so yeah. much. You even talk about yeah. the difference between a, a McDouble and a double cheeseburger at <laughs> some point, right. which is I did that hysteria, research. But. I actually did that research. I, so yes. I, I can definitely hear all of where everything is coming from. It's also it's a story. It's a fictional story yeah. from a, uh, a you know a factual situation that happened, and it's set in the real world. And there's some people that are absolutely. Uh, real you mentioned you know Trayvon Martin and a lot of things that right. actually happened and then there are some characters in the story that in my mind are definitely based on real people.
3: like Wallace Mercy yeah, yeah. that would be
2: one of them yeah. I was tiptoeing around that <laughs> yeah uh, so how, was there a conscious decision you made to base some characters off of real people and then say I'm not actually going to come right out and say this is the actual person and Maybe was there a reason behind that?
3: Yeah, so the Wallace-Mercy character is um, very much like an Al Sharpton character. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but he and, you know, he has his own agenda, sort of, and he is using Ruth's plight, I think, to further his own agenda, which she's not too crazy about. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that I, I did very clearly and methodically reference real-life people and cases like Trayvon Martin. Uh, like, for example, there's an incident where... Um, uh, there's a reference to a Playmobile pirate ship. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. The, the, last year, this or two years ago, I don't remember how long ago it was. And when I was writing the book, this came up. That in there's a Playmobile pirate ship, and the only little plastic figures of color are slaves. Right, and that's the right reaction. By yeah, the that was good. That <laughs> gasp, yeah, but that's the right you know, and there was a big controversy over why is that? There actually were black pirates too. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, little things, little tidbits like that that were in the news. I put into the book to ground you in reality and to remind you this is not. Just fiction. This does happen right. every single day. A character like Wallace Mercy has enough interaction in the fictional world with fictional characters that I didn't want to co-opt Al Sharpton's life and write <laughs> right. him into my book, um, you know. But that's why he gets reimagined sure. as a character.
1: And sort of going off with of that, you talked about how during the research, sort of confronting your own biases. Do those show up in any of the characters or any instances? Absolutely.
3: Um, when you read Kennedy, who is the, the public defender, she, I think of her as the every woman character, the one who you're going to look at her life and see her family and say, oh, my gosh, this looks like me on a Monday morning, trying to get my kid off to you know, daycare or whatever. And then at some point you're going to go, oh, my gosh, this looks just like me. <laughs> and you know I, I learned so much personally writing this book. I learned that even though I wasn't talking about racism didn't mean that I wasn't part of the problem. I learned that it's more important to talk about racism and know we're going to make mistakes, because we all are. I am, you are, we all are. And then learn from that and say, thank you, Move, I'm moving on, I appreciate learning that, than to not talk about it at all. And I learned that it's really easy for us to see the headwinds of racism, the ways that uh, it, it's difficult in our society for a person of color to achieve success It's a lot harder for people who look like me to admit to the tailwinds of racism, which are the boosts that we get because we have light-colored skin. We really prefer to think of those moments, of our successes, as being hard work or luck When in reality, very often, an opportunity that exists for you is a direct result of the fact that someone of color did not have that opportunity. So it could be something you never knew about. Like, maybe you got an apartment rental because the landlord didn't want to rent to an African-American person, and you had no idea about that, but you got the apartment anyway. But it also could be something that you have misconstrued. Like, you might think, I went to a really good school, and that's because I studied really hard, and you know, I, I did well on my SATs. I tried my whole life as a student. Well, yes, but it also could be because when you were a kid, your mom was there to read to you every night and to model that kind of behavior. And a person of color's mom was working two or three jobs and wasn't there to do that. And so that kid was playing catch-up his whole life. And when you start to see the world that way, it is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I, didn't, I didn't look at color for 47 years of my life. I intentionally didn't look at it, which is and of itself a privilege. Now it's the only thing I see.
2: And so we went through your research process, and in, in doing our own research, I found <laughs> something that I thought is absolutely fascinating, and it's a lot more lighthearted. But for a previous book, you had a research... Uh, adventure where you went on a ghost hunt. Is that oh, yeah. correct? Can yeah. you maybe just sure. maybe share that with us for a little bit? I I would love to hear more. This is a selfish question. yeah <laughs> absolutely.
3: Um, so uh, this was much more lighthearted research, I mm. guess. Um, I, I was doing research for Second Glance. And uh, that book has an element in it that is paranormal. And so I needed to find someone who knew something about the paranormal. And um, I don't know how many of you know the TV show Ghost Hunters, Do you know that? So um, this was a long time ago, and before they had, excuse me, that TV show, they were just Roto-Rooter plumbers. And um, I actually found them online. I looked for the closest paranormal society to where I live, and it was TAPS. And I wrote a a note explaining what I was doing, thinking it's going to take these guys forever to write me back. Within 10 minutes, the three founders had written me back. (laughs) And... They invited me to come down to Rhode Island to learn about ghosts. Mm -hmm. So at the time, my oldest kid was about eight years old. He was terrified of ghosts. So here I am packing a bag saying, you know, honey, there's no such thing as ghosts, and then going ghost hunting. And I went down to um, Providence, Rhode Island, and the first thing these guys did was take me out to dinner to explain why some people become ghosts. Apparently, dying is like getting on a bus. You're supposed to go to the end of the line and keep going. But if the bus stops at a rest stop and you get off to use the restroom and you come back and the bus is gone, that's a ghost.
0: Did they ever, did they ever explain
2: how they knew that? No. Just, okay. Um, I was just I was then, curious.
3: They, um, but if you ever see a ghost, you're supposed to say, go to the light. And they'll go, right, and disappear. <laughs> so I'm like totally not buying this, right? <laughs> So they take me to an abandoned mental institution in Providence, Rhode Island, where people uh, were dying in in the care of, of the institution. So it closed in the 1970s. So everything's boarded up. There's no electricity. And the first thing we do is peek into this room that is an abandoned exercise room. And you can, it's January, so it's freezing cold out. And you can see between these boarded up slats, this gross with leaves floating in it and in the corners of the room are fireflies now I don't know about Ohio but in New Hampshire there are no fireflies (laughs) in the winter and one of the guys takes his camera and takes a picture and those fireflies turn into great big balls of light which is what a ghost hunter would call a globule or energy changing form again I'm not buying it So then we go walking in an area where a building burned down with people in it. And I'm walking next to a guy who's allegedly a sensitive when all of the hair stands up on the back of my neck. And before I can even say anything, he again takes his camera and goes, takes a picture behind us. It was pitch black when we turned around. But in the viewfinder of the digital camera was this white, misty, wraith-like thing. So I went, maybe you have a point. And from there, we went over the border into Massachusetts because um, someone had called them saying they had... You know, been hearing moans and groans and bumps and thumps in the attic. So we go to this house, and uh, we go upstairs to the attic, which has um, a padlock on it. They give me the keys. I open it, put the key in my pocket. We set up a video camera, which you see in my book and you see on their show. That's how they record paranormal evidence. And I'm the last one out. Close the door, lock it. They go downstairs to talk to the owners of the house. I stop off on the second floor, which has two rooms with two little kids in it, a six-month-old and a 22-month-old. They're both fast asleep in their cribs. There are no toys or books or clothes or anything on the floor, which, as I've always said, is paranormal. <laughs> and But they were fine. <laughs> and then I, I go downstairs, and the ghost hunters are talking to the owners of the house, and the owners have found... They've come home to find all the faucets running. They've come home to find all the cereal spilled into a pile in the middle of the kitchen floor. One night they heard Calliope music at 2 a.m. and they traced it to the stairs of the attic. And it was a child's toy piano playing without batteries. Yeah, when I heard that, I said, I'm going to go check on your kids. And I go back upstairs (laughs) and where there was nothing in the first kid's room, there were six pennies lining the edge of the crypt on the bottom of the floor. And I picked them up. They're all dated between 1968 and 1973. So I put them in my pocket, go into the next kid's room. Same thing, six pennies lining the edge of the crib, all dated between 68 and 73. I took the key out of my pocket, opened the padlock, went upstairs to where the video camera was running, and under the video camera tripod, as if someone had gone, (laughs) were another 15 pennies, all dated between 68 and 73. If you look now in your purses or pockets, you're going to have a hard time finding coins with those dates because they're mostly out of circulation. And these guys wound up going back two more times, deciding there was something paranormal in the house, and they wound up um, uh, doing research and finding out that two people died there, one in 1968 and
2: one in 1973. Oh, my gosh. So you heard it here first, ghosts (laughs) are real.
1: So moving on from the research process to the writing process... Um, uh, the books and I've noticed this in all of them but in small great things things that start in the beginning chapters kind of come full circle at the end do you have the plots points all figured out when you write your books
3: I know the beginning of the book and I know the twist okay. and I know that because anyone can throw a twist in at the end but leave no clues that's a sucker punch and that's lazy writing But my job is to give you a whole bunch of clues so that when you have that aha moment, you can go back and go, oh, my God, what did I miss? And (laughs) find it. And and you should be able to do that in all of my books. So even though I know the beginning and the end, I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get from one place to the other. And the characters are the ones who really make that happen. And I learned long ago to not force them, but just to kind of hold on to the reins and Mm -hmm. let them go.
2: And so four of your books have been made into television movies, and also My Sister's Keeper was adapted to the big screen. You're not shy about sharing your thoughts on that. Um, That's true, yes. Were you involved in the creative process of any of those?
3: Um, I actually, not a whole lot, but every time a TV movie was done, I was invited to the set. And I would be asked by the actors all kinds of questions. E- at every movie, I was asked to rewrite scenes. I mean, they actually did include me a lot more than than I would have expected. And if you saw Plain Truth, actually, my family was... We were extras. We were an Amish family. Aww. Yeah. Um, <laughs> high point of my acting career. And uh, and uh, then with with My Sister's Keeper, it was a very, very different experience. When... When you sell the rights to a movie as an author, usually they want you to just go away. And uh, for those of you who've seen movies and think, why did the author let them do that? Believe me, the author didn't let them do anything. In my case, um, it was particularly painful because they asked me to speak to Nick Cassavetes, the director, before he was hired. And uh, I, I did. And I said, the only thing that really matters to me is that you keep the ending. And he read the book and he said, oh, you're right, that's the only ending for the story. I'm not going to change it. Um, If anyone does, I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to tell you myself. And he spent two years writing a script that looked a lot like the book, and he would call me every week and ask for help or advice, and I was always available. And then I got an email from a fan who worked at a casting agency, and she said, Did you know that they changed the ending of My Sister's Keeper? So I called Nick at home, and he wouldn't take my call. (laughs) I flew to the set, and he threw me off the set. What? I went straight to New Line Cinema, and I met with the head, Toby Emmerich, and I said you guys are going to lose a lot of money on this film. And he said, oh, no, 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 we trust Nick. He made The Notebook. And I said, don't get, don't get me started. And, uh, and he said, and he said uh, well, yeah, I said, you don't know my fans. And sure enough, um, they lost a lot of money on My Sister's Keeper. Thank you. And... Um, the cool thing about it is that now, as a result of that, because I was able to say to someone in Hollywood, you're going to lose money, and they did, they think I'm a savant. And now, <laughs> since then, when I've had other movie things come up, I have had more creative input, which is kind of a silver lining, I guess.
1: So it sort of worked out. <laughs> nope. not really. No, not, really. nope. not even a little. I know. Nope. All right, nope. I'm trying. I tried. I tried. <laughs> um, I saw on your website, and this is sort of a personal thing is mine question, um, that when you were 13, you read Gone with the Wind. Yes. Yeah. That is one of my absolute favorite books. You have
3: excellent taste. <laughs> yes. See, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, and that sort of was what made you think, this is something I want to do, I yeah. could do. Have there been any other books that had that kind
3: of impact? That was the one that, you know, and I always think, what's the book that changed me? It was that one. And it was this arresting moment where I remember reading a description of, you know, the South burning, and I could smell it, I could see it, I could taste it. And I stepped back immediately, and I just thought, she created a whole world out of words. I could do that. Mm-hmm. It was like the first moment I really remember thinking I could be a writer. Now, interestingly, having written this book, I've gone back to Gone with the Wind, and I of course, back then at 13, I didn't notice yeah. how the portraits of the the black characters are very um, stereotypical and sketched out, as opposed to the very three-dimensional white characters in the book. And I like to believe that that's because Margaret Mitchell was a product of her times. I think she was very much um, a feminist for her age, or Scarlett wouldn't have been who she was. And I'd like to think that perhaps given a few more years, she would have rewritten some of those black characters. That was um, going to be my follow-up. Yeah. I'm, I'm holding out hope for that. Um, but there have been other books that have really you know, meant something to me. Uh, when I was in college, I remember rereading um, uh, The Great Gatsby. And it was the first time I really realized what an unreliable narrator could be and how fun that was as a writer. Like I looked at it from a writing standpoint. How awesome is it if the only vehicle into your story is someone you can't trust? Um, And I've used that many, many times. I love that. Um, I remember getting out of college, and the very first book I ever read as a fan instead of as a student as an adult was Turtle Moon by Alice Hoffman. And she remains to this day my favorite author. And now we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Um, She's fantastic. Um, And then when when I had kids, there was a book that really meant a lot to my daughter and I called The Paper Bag Princess. Um, It's this great children's book about Princess Elizabeth, whose entire kingdom is burned down by a dragon, and Prince Ronald, her love interest, is carried off by the dragon, and she has no clothes. They get burned off her, so she puts on a paper bag and goes to rescue Prince Ronald, and she does it by outsmarting the dragon, because she's not strong. And finally, when she literally makes him collapse out of exhaustion, and she steps over his head into his cave and rescues Prince Ronald, he says to her, well, you don't look very much like a princess. And she says, well, you look like a prince, but you're a jerk. And she walks off without him. And that's the end of the book. And. What I loved about that was that it was a great, strong woman book for my daughter. And, you know, we've gone on, my daughter is now 21, and we've written two young adult novels together, which were her original idea, and she contributed, you know, absolutely 50%, if not more, to the writing. And um, and it's about a girl who rescues a prince. And I, I hadn't really thought about that until I was, you know, asked to talk about some books that meant something to me recently, and I realized, wow, that's kind of interesting that we went there. Yeah,
2: that is. Okay, so speaking of early memories and yes. children's books and things like that, I've seen that you said one of your earliest memories is getting your library card. Yes. We are sitting in a library, a lot of library yep. fans love here, libraries, would imagine. yeah. Would you mind just sharing some thoughts about libraries or an experience you have in a library? Anything? Absolutely.
3: Um, so that story is when I was, I learned how to read when I was three, three and a half, and I was... Really smart, like really smart. (laughs) And my mom was like a huge reader. She used to go to the library every week and come home with a giant stack of books and read them all and then go back to the library every week. And all I wanted to do was be like her. And I had to learn how to write my name so that I could get my library card. And I that is seriously one of my earliest memories is going to get my library card. And I remember it was green and we laminated it. It was very exciting. <laughs> and what the other story that I like to tell about libraries is that my first job was at as a page at a library, which I now think is a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Right? Yes, to be sure. a page. And, yeah, yeah, totally. great.
3: Um but I love libraries. I think, you know, what's really great is that sometimes I have I have fans who'll write me on an email, and they'll say, I can't afford your book. And I always write back and say, how lucky for you that we have libraries. <laughs> That's the whole point of them, right? But um, you know, we novelists are very grateful to libraries and to librarians.
1: Um, I read somewhere, on your, I think it was on your website, that you start writing a new book as soon as you're finished with the first one. Are you working
3: on anything? So that is entirely true, except for this book. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I know, I know what I'm writing next. I'm not telling any of you, but I know. And um, this is the first book that I haven't been able to let go of. Uh, I told you, this one was life-changing for mm-hmm. me and really has affected me deeply. But these characters are with me, and more importantly, this conversation is with me. I really feel the need to continue having it uh, I will go home after book tour. I get home around Christmas time, and I will I will move on to the research for the new book. Um, but I can't quite let go of this yet because it was so deeply affecting. And you know, one of the things that that I do want to say about this is we're talking a lot about racism. We're talking about hard things. Um, racism is is messy and big and systemic and institutional, but it's both perpetuated and, and dismantled in individual acts which is something you see in the relationship of Ruth and Kennedy in the book. It's also fiction, this book. It is a novel, and you will enjoy the story no matter what. Um, But sometimes it's really hard to go up to somebody whose beliefs are very different than yours and say, let's talk about racism, huh? (laughs) I mean, you can't even do that with politics right now, so you can imagine what racism is like. The cool thing about a novel is that it's what I call bipartisan. You know, if you give someone a book to read and say, hey, let's read this together, even if they don't think like you do, that's okay, because you're talking about fake characters and (laughs) fake situations, and, you know, oh my gosh, could you believe Ruth did that? What about when Kennedy said, and then somehow you can slide into, I remember when I saw this on the news, and it was kind of like when Ruth did, and all of a sudden you're talking about something that is too hard to bring up face-to-face. So for those people out there who want to enter this conversation and who are not quite sure how to do it, use a book, use a movie, use something neutral that will allow you to start talking about race because it is all of our problems.
2: Okay, we're going to open up for Q&A in just one moment, but before we do that, we have nine rapid-fire questions that we Oh, ask. excellent. I love so these those. Are really, <laughs> these are really easy. Okay. Oh, actually, I say these are easy every time, and then I always have more issues with these than normal questions. So right. uh, we call them the Nerd Nine, professional okay. book nerds, and I okay. like alliteration, so deal with it. Uh, <laughs> all right, what is the last book you read?
3: Um, the last book I read, not the one that I'm in the middle of. The last book you finished. The last book I finished was The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Mm-hmm. What's really name? good if you haven't read it yet.
2: I think Oprah thinks so too. Is that right? Not a surprise. Uh, Favorite place to read? A bathtub. Guilty Pleasure?
3: Um, The Bachelor.
2: (laughs) Good Good answer. (laughs) What's one place you'd like to travel that you haven't yet been to?
3: The Maldives. It's totally on my bucket list.
2: What's your favorite
3: holiday? Christmas.
2: Favorite movie?
3: Shakespeare and Love.
2: Cats or Dogs?
3: Oh my God, is that even a question? Just, it
2: is. Have to ask.
1: Dogs? Thank
2: you. That's the right answer, Jill. Jill, I that's have the right four answer. Four dogs.
3: I, I, <laughs> I just have wanted Four you cats. T- I, I, Okay. <laughs> you <laughs> okay. can <laughs> leave now, Jill.
2: <laughs> uh, what's your favorite food? Chocolate. And if you could have dinner with anyone, alive or dead, who would you choose? Would
3: you believe I was just asked this in Columbus like an hour ago?
2: Really? Yes.
0: I'm so proud of that
2: question.
3: <laughs> ah, well, ahead. I'm going to give the same answer. That's, well, that's, that's okay. You with okay. You. That's okay. Um, Shakespeare. And I'll tell you why. Because um, I think that people forget that Shakespeare was a commercial writer. Mm-hmm. That he was writing for popular consumption for the masses, for the people. And a lot of times, people who write commercial fiction don't get a lot of respect um, I think there's really good commercial fiction and really bad literary fiction. And um, I, I really, I think that's important to remember. If you, Like I always say, 100 years from now, what book do you think we're going to remember? Do you think you're going to remember, you know, for example, Jonathan Franzen and the Corrections? Or do you think you're going to remember Harry Potter? Just saying. <laughs> um, and that was a, a work of commercial fiction. And, uh, you know, I think that I would love to talk to Shakespeare about that. And I would say to him... Okay, Romeo and Juliet, when they first meet and they speak a sonnet together. Right? <laughs> how did you come up with that? That's what I would say. Perfect. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> so if anyone has questions, if you guys want to stand up, we'll try to call you out. Right there? And then we'll repeat the questions over First of all,
1: thank you for the shout-out to the library library. I'm a librarian, so Yeah, we love library. So how do you know when
2: to stop the research?
3: Great question. How do you know when to stop researching? Oh, yeah, I can do you Nailed it.
2: We just want to we'll just
3: go. Not my <laughs> first rodeo. Yeah. Um, so how do you know when to stop researching and start writing? To be honest, um, I I know because something changes in my head. I have all this research going around and around. It feels like a tornado. You know, the more I accumulate, the more things the cows and the houses are being picked up by the tornado, and they're all circling. And then it touches down in a first line. And when I have the first line, I know I'm ready to write. But that said, um, I usually wind up doing a good 85% of the research before I start writing, and then in the middle of the book, I'll go, oh, crap, I have to find something out, and I'll run out and try to find it. Uh, but I do try to front load as, as much as I can. I guess I'll over
2: here. Um, I was
1: just going to say that my favorite... Reason to read your books is because you give the reader the
3: ability to see every character's point of view. Thank you. And that is—it
1: has opened my mind to many different viewpoints, and so—and I will never judge a misbehaved child ever again.
3: (laughs) (laughs) House rules. House rules you were close house home um that was not really a question but this lovely lady gave me a compliment so that's all you need to know right here in the
2: front house rules is so wonderful i have a son
1: on the the spectrum how did you develop jacob's
3: voice how did i develop jacob's voice in house rules jacob is um a kid with autism um high functioning autism he has asperger's and the way i actually did the research for that was kind of interesting um as you, you probably know, if you know somebody who's on the spectrum, kids who have autism don't do too well face-to-face. And so sitting down and interviewing kids face-to-face was not going to get me very far. Um, and I did actually interview about five kids face-to-face who were on the spectrum because I needed to see how they react face-to-face. But then I had a questionnaire that I sent out to 50 kids who were on the spectrum, um, high-functioning autism. And here's one thing about kids who have Asperger's. They are really, really smart. And they wrote me back. One girl alone wrote me 200 pages in response. <laughs> they have a lot to say. And all of Jacob's characteristics and quirks and the way that he thinks, the way his mind works, all came from those kids and the, um, their answers, basically, that they gave me. And then I sent 50 questionnaires, matching questionnaires, to their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Hi.
1: Hi. I'm a high school English teacher, and we teach 19 minutes, and our department feels like it is invaluable. Oh, thank you. Um, but with the graphic material that's in the book, do you have any suggestions on how to handle that with our young audience and how we can best bring them that very important mm-hmm. matter in a way
3: that we can mm-hmm. also... Sure. So the question is about 19 minutes, which is about a school shooter. And um, this young woman is doing the work of the angel. She's a high school English teacher. And um, I used to be an English teacher. And, you know, the thing about 19 Minutes, um, that book has been banned in a lot of places. I'm very proud of that. It's very good company to be in. Uh, and it usually means you're writing the right thing. And um, I'm very proud of the more than 100 high schools that use it as curriculum in America as well. What I hear routinely from teachers is that the discussions centering on 19 Minutes are the the most energized discussions they have all year with a work of literature. Um, Now that said, at one point in my own home state of New Hampshire, there was a parent who uh, called out that book um, and flagged a particular section And, uh, that was a date rape, actually, an act of violence, and decided that I was a pornographer because of that one page. That was, I mean, it was exciting to be a pornographer for just a day, anyway. Um, you know, and if that's what you're focusing on, I, you know, my, my feeling is that there's, in particularly in high school, there's very little in that book kids do not see in games, on films, anything like that, uh, in, in terms of the violence or really the sexual activity in there. Um, the one thing that I can recommend is that on my website, right now on the 19 minutes page, the State Department of Education in Connecticut created a fishbowl curriculum. One that, uh, it, it has all these responses for, uh, prompts, I'm sorry, for discussion and for writing. And, um, and I think that might be a great resource to use because it's credited by a State Department of Education, so that should make the parents happy. Um, but, you know, I think that ultimately that book is not a book about violence. That is a book about bullying, and as long as you keep the focus where it's supposed to be, um, and you know not, I guess, devolve into a, a question of um, you know how many people were shot or how, what was the actual shooting like. If you skip over that part, then I, I guess that's one way to sort of make it a little safer. Frankly, I would go all in, and I would actually start talking about gun control and school shootings and how many shootings have happened since Newtown and why we don't have gun reform in this country. Uh, and ask those, ask your kids that because they're the next generation and they're the ones who are going to make a difference.
2: I could just sure. piggyback off of that. Yeah. That's really <laughs> really nice. uh, it's actually a really timely question, as Amy um, mentioned earlier. We work at Overdrive. We actually have a, uh, a program going on right now called the Big Library Read. Every uh, three or four months, we do a global ebook club, cool. and we have our readers pick which title is going to be next. And the one that's going on right now as we speak is called This Is Where It Ends. It's by Marie Nycomp. It's actually a young adult book told during real time of a school shooting. It's right. told over 54 minutes, and it's mm-hmm. told just like you write over multiple right. different characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to biglibrary.com, we actually have discussion questions, uh, a discussion forum. We have a whole bunch of stuff. And if you go to Cuyahoga County's Overdrive page, everyone can borrow the title at the same time with no wait list or anything. And same thing, I have been on my soapbox around our office for the past couple of weeks talking about how important this is. So right. I just wanted to kind of give you maybe one more book to, to use with your students. And the
3: other thing is that, you know, when I've come up against parents who are afraid of this material, what I usually say is read it with them. Why not read it with them and have a conversation with them about it? I mean, that's a, like I said, fiction is this unbelievable tool. It becomes a springboard that we can dive off, uh, you know, into and have a messy conversation that starts with the fiction and then broadens from there, and that, you know, invite the parents into the community into the discussions. I I saw another question. Go
1: ahead. I just wanted to really applaud you for this book that you just thank you because it wasn't easy. I will say for sure, I had a hard time when I started. It was right after my kids left from. Um, being home for college break, and as they often do, they point out all of your shortcomings. <laughs> yes.
3: And my little child pointed out that I
1: described her boyfriend to other people as this big black guy. And I said, well, he's a defensive tackle, <laughs> and he's he's big. You know, she said, you have to stop doing that. Got on the plane the next day, and I had your book, and I was, like, ready to be whisked away. <laughs> it was completely I had read. Thank you. Makes you think about yourself and what you do, but my question really is—and I don't know—spoiler alert-wise for the ending.
3: Oh, uh, yeah. Did you think about endings? Yes. There, how did you, um, do you want to talk to me privately in the line? Okay.
2: <laughs> right. I would say for that those of you who couldn't yeah. hear, but I think everyone heard her ask about the ending, which you'll just want to read the book. Yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, yeah, I did, of course, think of alternate endings. This is, for me, the right ending for this book. And what I will tell you is that it is not too far off from the truth of my research. If That helps.
2: Way back in the corner with your hand up. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a certain twin sister who has published her first
1: book but now she says she's lost her talent. But I want to encourage her to write a textbook.
3: What advice would she have for her? Did you publish through a brick-and-mortar publisher, or were you self-published? Uh, it was a publisher, a really small um and Okay. So um, this is what I would say to you. If you don't think you're worth anything, why should anyone ever take a chance on you? And if you wake up with ideas in your head If you can't not write, that's what makes you a writer. It's that simple. So you may never publish again, but you are probably still a writer. It's up to you to decide if you're brave enough to share it with everybody. Does that help? (laughs) And you're probably gonna kill your sister later, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, probably.
2: (laughs) In the corner over here?
3: Uh, How do I do research for topics like the pact or change of heart? Well, um, you know, one of them is about um, suicide, teen suicide, and unfortunately, you can do a lot of research on teen suicide. You can do it through psychologists, and you can do it through grieving families, and you can do it through teens who have been suicidal. Um, It was uh, not at all difficult to do that research, and in fact, the way I did it was um, kind of interesting because I hadn't published very much then. I... You know, no one really knew who I was, but I had tiny little kids and we had babysitters. And I told my babysitter, I said, do you think you could get a group of kids over to my house to talk about some really hard stuff? And I'll give you guys like all the pizza you can eat and all the Pepsi you can drink. (laughs) And she brought over five friends and we let a tape recorder run. And, you know, I asked all these questions about, you know, depression, have you ever been suicidal, have you ever cut yourself, how many phone calls would it take for you to get a gun, when did you first have sex, why did you first have sex, all these questions. And I remember at the end of this, you know, they all went home, and I went upstairs to bed, and my husband was waiting for me, and I told him, you know, what, what they'd said. And he just got quiet, and he goes, so she's never babysitting for us again, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> She did, but, um, <laughs> you know, the thing is that a lot of people don't listen to adolescents. I love teenagers. I love them. I work with them, actually, in my spare time. I run a teen theater group in New Hampshire, and I do it because teens have a built-in BS meter. They do not let you get away with anything. That's also why they're so fun to write as narrators. And so whenever I'm writing a teen voice, I make sure I'm hanging around teens so that I can really get that down and hear what, what's important to them and what they worry about and what keeps them up at night. Um, for Change of Heart, the research was really all over the board for that one because uh, in addition to um, very medical stuff about heart transplants and hangings and capital punishment, um, which I did through through my state prison, actually – um, we in New Hampshire still have the death penalty on our books, although we have not used it in many, many years. And um, and yes, the the alternate form, every state that has the death penalty has an alternate form of death penalty other than lethal injection. And in New Hampshire, it is hanging, which is why that's in the book. And um, But the other research that I did was through a religious scholar named Elaine Pagels who has written tons of, of books on the Gnostic Gospels, which are basically the Gospels that didn't make it into the Bible, the losers of the, of the Gospels. <laughs> and it's very, very fascinating to hear why Christianity is what you think it is today, and why certain B- Gospels were rejected and others were included, and who made those decisions. And that was all part of the research for that book.
0: In the yeah. yellow right in the middle? Yep. Yeah. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Uh, more about the team BS here. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so I'm always looking for ways to enter into these dialogues with my students and it's something that I do very early in the year um, and so it just struck a chord when you said that one of the women that you were
3: talking with um, brought her son and she says that she has to talk about racism every single day Right. Um, most of my students they don't if they're lucky they
1: have one parent at home or in the classroom and things like that um, so I am that person and so we, we have those conversations a lot more often when we talk about Poe or anything like that mm-hmm. um, so we start off Um, Sometimes I feel like a well-rounded just because it can be a heavy, you know, something to carry that's very heavy. So I just wanted to say thank you for creating
3: more content and more ways for me to connect with my kids. Oh, thank you very much. Um, The really great thing for you, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure all the librarians in here know, is that representation really matters, and that particularly for kids of color to see themselves in books is a remarkable thing. Uh, There are so many amazing, particularly YA writers right now uh, of color who are writing unbelievable books. Um, And I'm sure you're sharing those with your kids. Uh, I had a a young woman, um, she was an African-American woman in my LA event that I did, and she stood up and she started to cry. It was really deeply moving. And she said, you've been my favorite author for a decade, but I never thought your main character would ever look like me.
2: Oh, wow really good.
3: It's really cool, yeah.
2: I think we've got time for one more. Oh, way in the back. Yes, sir. <laughs> um,
0: which book did you struggle with the most from when you had your idea, the twist, and then at some point maybe thought, I don't know how I'm ever going to get there, and it's not going to work out the way I thought it would?
3: Um, different books are, are hard for different reasons. This book was terrifying, honestly, because I, I thought that there would be a lot of pushback from different communities. And overall, I will say that the reception of this book has been overwhelmingly humbling and really positive. And people of color are reading it and are seeing themselves in it and are thanking me for seeing them clearly and authentically. And people who are white who are reading it are, like you said, challenged by the material and coming away saying, wow, wow. I didn't think about this stuff before. I need to think about this. I need to start making changes in my life, small changes that will change my behavior and the behavior of others. And that, honestly, I couldn't ask for, for a more wonderful outcome. But, you know, like today, I actually got a really, really nasty vitriolic hate letter from a woman who called me a race traitor. Um, I have certainly had people of color say, she shouldn't be writing this book, she's white. And both of those, I understand where, where why they're saying what they're saying. Um, you know, and it was terrifying for that reason to jump into this. But for me, the need to write it and the reasons to write it far outweighed the fact that I might face a little bit of heat, which is why I did it. There were other books that I've written that have been uh, physically difficult to write because of the research. The Tenth Circle, I went to a Yupik Eskimo village. It was 48 degrees below zero. The only way to get there was to take a 60-mile um, ride on the back of a snow machine... <laughs> on a frozen river that had a highway number on it in the winter. That was intense. (laughs) Um, And then there are books that are really emotionally difficult to write. Um, When I wrote Sing You Home, which is about gay rights and gay parenting, uh, I had to take off my mom hat and put on my researcher hat. My oldest son is gay, and um, I, as a young woman said here, I give all points of view, and I wasn't going to change that for this book. But that meant going to meet with the Family Research Council in Colorado and listening to their public information officer say things to me that were very upsetting. Um, they have a very political arm, a lobbyist arm, and I asked whether they, wor- I w- whether they worried that some of their message was leading people to commit hate crimes against gay people. And she said, well, thank goodness that's never happened. And I said, um, you know, uh, what? Have you heard of Matthew Shepard? And she said, who? Who? And at that point, I actually had to excuse myself, go to the bathroom, splash water on my face, get myself together, and come back in and finish that interview. I had to take off my immediate reaction as a mom and put on the face of an interviewer. And that was a very difficult book to write because I really did not want to give that opinion the light of day, but I did.
2: Well, I just want to say, to me, the best books that I read are the ones that stay with me and that spark a conversation with people that I work with and I live with and so I just want to say thank you for writing yet another one of those books and we would love to keep you here all night but (laughs) But once again I'm I'm getting up at 4 a.m so I can take (laughs) a flight exactly so I just want to say thank you and thank all of you guys for coming here
3: thank you so much for having me
1: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.
0: I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.